0: Hello everyone, Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics is back. We had a bit of a hiatus, Uh, I was in Japan for two weeks, Everald then was down in Melbourne for a week for a family wedding, but we're both back here now, we've both been doing some pretty important things in the meantime, and we're both ready to uh, rip into some politicians for the rest of the year, am I right?
1: We're absolutely right, we're firing up and, and I'm looking forward to having a chat with you about what you found out in Japan, which is the key... A country of the of the world and if you want to know something about how to have a great family wedding with people from coming around the world and to celebrate it all and be sober at the end of it that's a very great art which we can talk about sometime but let, let, let's get into what's going on I, I've been to Parliament this week As you know James I was there right Tuesday, left Thursday I had arranged in advance to meet uh, 15 members of parliament for meetings, some lasting an hour, some half an hour, some maybe 10 minutes, but 15. And then I ran into people in the corridors who asked me if I could fit in with a meeting. And so I finally wound up with uh, 24 meetings in the two days that uh, I, I was there. And, uh, and I, I saw ALP, Liberals, Nationals, uh, and independence and uh, and not a fair, you, you just get a feeling of the parliament. Now, two things are obvious. One is uh, this is a very, very different parliament to what I've been experiencing in the last nine years, where I've gone down three times a year for those nine years, whether starting with Abbott and Turnbull and Morrison and without uh, starting a hate session about them, I think there's been enough hate sessions about them they ran parliaments that were all about gaining and holding power and doing what was necessary to do that. There's now a totally different attitude. I'm not saying that Alba doesn't want to hold power, but the whole issue is around getting legislation through the parliament. And every minister I met, I met seven of them altogether, cabinet ministers, other than MPs. They said that they were under enormous pressure from Alba, not he wasn't being met that they all have to keep producing legislation about all the significant things that were promised in the election campaign, and they're finding the pressure, and their staff are finding pressure to be overwhelming to get legislation to the past. So this is a, a reforming parliament. Now, I also found that a little bit of the glamour has worn off uh, from Albo, because, mainly because of inflation and the cost of living, which hurts everyone when people's cost of living gets hurt and their bank loans, they, they blame the government, so a little bit of a shade off and there's a few things going on about voice that we need to talk about, but this is a different parliament with things happening now. For where you sit, James, how did you see this week in parliament? I mean, the um,
0: well, the big story this week in parliament ultimately turned out to be um, Alan Tudge's surprise resignation. It may not have been a surprise to you, having been on the ground for the past three days. But to us playing along at home, it was quite a shock. But the one piece of legislation this week that Labor's put through the Parliament that I think is really, really cool and good is forcing companies with over 100 employees to disclose their gender pay gaps. Now, um, there is no better way to call out a company. Uh, There's this great quote from some legal judgment in, I think, the 1800s or 1700s it's from England where one of the Lords in the House of Lords says that a company has a uh, nobody to be kicked and no soul to be condemned is essential point being. It's very hard to punish companies for their wrongdoing because companies, you know, you can't throw a company in jail. Uh, you can't kick a company. You can't condemn its soul uh, because it's fundamentally, you know, a sort of uh, uh, ethereal fake construct, but forcing companies to disclose their gender pay gaps allows people, A, to know if you know, you know people boycott companies all the time because they disagree ethically with what they do. Say, for example, I don't know, Nestle. Nestle is a big company. Uh, say Nestle had a big gender pay gap, for example. People could now be aware of this and choose to buy their goods, their baked goods, their foods, their desserts from a company that does not have a gender pay gap. But I mean no disrespect to Nestle by picking them as my example, but it allows consumers to make informed choices about where they're buying their stuff from um, and not support companies who pay men a lot more than they pay women. Uh, It allows this name and shame sort of thing where the companies who are paying women less than they're paying men will be, you know, publicly on a register essentially where people can point to that and say, hey, why do you pay women less than you pay men? So I think it's a really, really nice um, positive move forward. One big thing this government did want to do, and a lot of the independents want to do this as well, is bring women's rights in this country forward after they stagnated for nine years under the previous Liberal governments. And I think this is a huge step in pushing women's economic rights forward. So I think it's a um, a really nice change. And I think, like you say, the tone of what's coming out of Parliament just feels a little, a little more reformist.
1: So, and they're all. And that, that was a good point, James. There's all sorts of interesting things. Because when I met Tanya Plibersek, for whom I have very high regard, it was on the day that she was uh, going to tell Clive Palmer that he couldn't have his, uh, you know, his, his mine, his coal mine. And, and uh, the fact of the matter is, it was a very brave decision because Clive is now going to go to court, and a few more lawyers are going to get wealthy with another Clive, you know, you know, court case. But then people sort of start to hammer her and say, okay, you've knocked Clive out about knocking off every coal mine in the, company, which, the country, which would be a ridiculous thing to do. And she makes all her judgments on all the facts, uh, and there's eminent lots of facts about environment, about the, the economy, about the markets, about climate change, that you've got to take into account. And if a company... Adheres to all the laws of the land. Uh, she's going to give them approval uh, uh, because they're the laws of the land. And she's not going to say, Well, blow that, up, I'm going to find some to get them out. And so everybody can get a fair out. But people like Clive Palmer were not obeying the laws of the land. That's why he lost it. It wasn't that she picked on him for any political reason. So it's interesting that that's going on in the parliament, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think um, one other development, I suppose, we saw this week that I found quite interesting was uh, Simon Birmingham seeming to um, break from Peter Dutton over voice a little bit. It was just interesting to hear from Simon Birmingham. His rhetoric on voice was a lot different to what Peter Dutton's been saying, because obviously Peter Dutton has been trying to undermine voice at every turn. But it seems like some of the moderates in the Liberal Party aren't too happy uh, with Peter Dutton's approach. Two voice at the moment, and you can correct me if I'm wrong there, but that seems to be the vibe I'm getting.
1: Well, well Peter Dutton is running a fine line and trying to tell us all he's still trying to make up his mind, and Birmingham did, uh, and several other people in the party did the same thing. It was Birmingham who got the publicity. So there's, just, there's a handful of people, and and Bridget Archer is one of them, uh, you know, the one from Tasmania mm-hmm. who who stood alone on quite a few things. But the, Albo gave some ground on voice this week, which I think he needed to do. Not, not because of any pressure from Morrison, but it had usually in a referendum, someone states uh, has to do a, a, a piece on why you vote yes, and someone else does a piece on how you vote no, and Parliament says that must go in the referendum document, so the voters have before them in the yes or no case. And, the didn't want to do this this time because there's the issue of who does the case. The Indigenous people are divided into about four groups about voice, and, and there's three or four different groups, you know, uh, uh, for and against uh, the, the whole thing. And so the issue is who do you get to write these things? Who, who is the authority to do it? And that's a thing they got to sort out. But at least Albo's agreed that the traditional uh, re- referendum thing will happen, that there will be a statement for the voters put out by the electorate and say, "This is the case for yes. This is the case for no," and you make up your mind. And I think that was a sensible thing for him to done. Now, the young lawyer, how do you see that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is as well that I understand also the calls for, well, let's let's legislate it beforehand, or the 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 answer not the the question's not detailed enough. But we must remember that in a referendum, the only question that goes to um, the public is the wording to be inserted into the Constitution. When referenda happen, as you would probably remember from your years of actually seeing successful referenda, while there is maybe detail out there and available on what the implications of voting yes are, the actual question that goes to the people is always something fairly simple. Because the question that goes to the people is the wording to be inserted into the constitution, and I think that's something that the sort of Dutton uh, "not enough detail" campaign has sort of conveniently failed to uh, concede on. That ultimately, and it, it's it's an easy it's an easy slide to pull as well, because if if you're under the age of um what if you're under the age of forty odd, uh, you've never voted in a referendum in this country before, because the last referendum was in 1980, uh, sorry, 1999 or whatever, the Republic referendum, which was people born in 1981 and older voting. So if you were born in 82 or after, you've never voted in a referendum. So it's very easy, I think, for um, bad faith actors like Dutton to throw a bit of misinformation about the process of referendums out there because half the country has never before voted in one. And so they don't know previous referendums and how they went to be able to say, hang on, that doesn't sound right. Um, Maybe I'm getting too technical, I don't know.
1: No, no, well, well, first of all, I don't want to side with Peter. I know Peter and he he and I get on okay. I don't want to go siding with him on this, but there are a significant number of conservative people, particularly oldies who have got nothing to do with politics. They're simply conservative citizens who have questions they want answered. And every time they ask a question, they're told to read the Uluru Statement from the heart or read Marcia Langton's and no and in which only about 1% of the voters are ever going to read, even if you try hard. But these are people who are good people. Now to be sensible people. They say, well, look, I'd like to know how many, how many guys are going to be in this voice. Is it 10, 20, 100? And how many are you going to elect? What is the cost of keeping it? Is there a whole pile of public servants, uh, you, know, you know, for them? Uh, will their powers be altered? Can it be made that their powers can't be altered without another referendum? And they're asking genuine questions, which a bit of simple detail, uh, uh, you know, would happen now as to how Elba can do that without looking to be giving in to Margaret. That's to, to, to another matter, but there are people who. So okay, I'm gonna answer the simple question on, on the on the dollar paper that that's okay. But I I would simply like to have a few facts about what that actually means. And I think that's an issue that will prevail throughout the referendum. Somehow or other an answer has to be given.
0: Conversely, I think um it, it can also be said that Dutton's really irresponsible on this one, because these are people who would listen to Peter Dutton if he took up the argument in favour of voice. And uh, Ken Wyatt, the former Indigenous Affairs Minister under the last Liberal government, presented the Uluru Statement to the heart and the voice mechanism and Marshall Langton's op-eds and whatnot to the party room twice. So it's not as if Dutton doesn't know what the details are. And I think realistically um, it's it's quite a shame that he has chosen to, rather than Help liberal voters along the process of understanding Voice. He's chosen to instead amplify and sow seeds of confusion about it. And I think this is probably Peter Dutton's natural instinct to say, "Well, Albo wants the Voice. I have to say no. Ooh, let's let's hold on here because I'm the opposition leader." He doesn't strike me as an opposition leader who is particularly um willing to meet in the middle and work for the compromise and help. Labor gets something through, and I think it's a great shame because I think it's artificially stunting progress towards voice.
1: Well, I, I think he, he has probably sensed the, the the concern that some Conservatives have about this, and he's capitalising on it, he's just, I'm going to jump on that train.
0: Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, you
1: know, I met uh, three people uh, in the last week, a friend of mine who voted Conservative all their life except in the last election where they voted against Morrison. They couldn't bring themselves to that side for the first time. Now, they voted independent, but the first time in their lives they did not vote Conservative. So we're talking about people who have already voted Conservatives and they just say, we don't know enough about what this voice means and we believe we're entitled to some sensible answers. And so I think we've got to, it's a delicate task, isn't it?
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I I, th- I think my point's more just that it annoys me that, like you said, Dutton's seen this, and rather than thought, well, as the leader of the opposition, someone who has a direct line to conservatives, I can help answer the questions for them. He's instead chosen to say, well, I'm going to attack the government over this and attack Voice over this, and I think it's just the it's 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 the path Peter Dutton. It's in character for him to take that path, but it's just very frustrating because I think it hampers efforts at getting voice up. Also happening in Parliament this week that I mentioned earlier, though, was um, the resignation of former social services minister, former minister for education, Alan Tudge. Now, are you there the day he called time on his career? Or
1: No, I wasn't there. I left. He called that on Thursday and I was flying out, but I was... As you know, when you get around Parliament, you get reliably, you put reliably in inverted commas, you get (laughs) reliably informed about what's going to happen. And now Tudge did not turn up for the first couple of days. He arrived for his statement, and and it was noted round the house that he wasn't there, and everybody... And so conservative guys I met said, "Wherever he's going and, you know, what's that space? And so he he did. And and I thought his... uh, resignation speech was rather tragic. He didn't even acknowledge a sin anywhere. Well, I don't like the word sin anywhere. I'm not a fundamentalist Christian, but he didn't acknowledge anything about the robo's dead or whatever. And he said he wanted to come to his family. And here's a bloke, and we don't want to be judgmental, here's a bloke who says he's now concerned about his family. Well, why wasn't he concerned about his family when he had an affair in Parliament with a woman that his family didn't know about? and that the federal government had to pay $600,000 to the woman for peace and quiet. Uh, it, it, I found it a bit ironic to say here's a bloke he loves his family and wants to go home. Now, forgetting about the morality of all that, it's created a by-election. Now, the Liberals think they're going to win it. Uh, the, the Liberals around the parliament uh, have had a few phone calls since. They believe they can win that, and basically they're going to run their campaign on, the cost of living under the Labour government has gone up and up and up and up. And if you had a conservative government, we'd get the price down and down and down and down, which is absolute bullshit, as you and I know. But they're gonna run, they're gonna run their campaign solely on you're being crucified financially by this Labour government. So use the Aston by election to give them a real good kick in the backside. Now it is true that there'll be people in Aston who Housing debts are interested is going up. There's people in Aston who go to the supermarket every week and find it costs them an extra 10 bucks from last week and, and they're they're branched off about that. But I I think if they want to protest, they'll protest with an independent or agree, and they won't move to the LNP. Now it depends on whether a good independent can be found. I think this is a seat that independent can win seat where the Greens can get a few votes. I'm pretty sure they won't win at this election. But I believe the protest vote won't go to Peter Dutton. It will go to Independence. Now, now, what's what's your gut feeling?
0: Well, let's let's talk about by-elections for a second. So apparently, I read from some pretty uh, smart election people on Twitter that the government hasn't taken a seat off the opposition in a by-election since like the 1920s. So the government taking a seat off the opposition in a by-election. Very, very rare. Hasn't happened for 100 years. Now let's talk about Aston. Heading into the 2022 election, Alan Tudge held that seat by about an 11% margin. But at the election, that margin was whittled down to about 2%. 2
1: 2.8.
0: 2.8 to be Pacific. So that was an 8% odd swing against Alan Tudge and the Liberals. And that was with, um, from what I understand, Labor didn't really push that hard to win Aston or anything. It wasn't as if Aston was on the seats Labor was targeting. Um, they didn't, not not to say they were at a bad campaign or anything, but it certainly wasn't in the top 10 sort of priority target seats that Labor was gunning for. Um, let us remember in Melbourne, the seat of Goldstein, um, went to uh, Zoe Daniel Josh Frydenberg's seat of Kuyong went to Dr. Monique Ryan so we've seen um, that at the last election in Melbourne there was that huge vote against the Liberals I think in Melbourne in like Metro Melbourne only Aston and Dan Tehan's seat uh, slightly northeast of Aston were the only two seats in all of Melbourne that stayed with the Liberals um, after that last election. Now, if there is a quality independent who runs, I completely agree that they must be in with a shot because Alan Tudge was a robo-debt architect um, and we've seen some horrible things coming out of the Royal Commission that have essentially said, and I know not your, your average voter doesn't necessarily pay attention to Royal Commissions, but the fact that he was told that the robo-debt scheme was super illegal... And he was basically like, oh, "I, I, I can't hear you." La 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 la. Um, yeah. as people were committing suicide over the illegal debt notices they received, is just horrible. Um, as you pointed out before, Alan Tudge, Mister Family Values, forced the taxpayer to pay six hundred and fifty million dollars in settlement, uh, for a workplace <laughs> misconduct claim uh, made by a former staffer. Not not million, mate, just six hundred. No, no, six hundred and fifty thousand. Six hundred and fifty thousand. Oh six hundred and fifty million, geez. We you know could build a lot of schools with 650 million. Yeah. Six hundred and fifty thousand um to an ex staffer, uh, Rochelle Miller, over a workplace misconduct claim, which settled. So he um if Labour slash the Greens slash the independents run their campaign right and do broadcast the um sins, for want of a better word, of Mr. Tudge. Um it, it could well be, and I think you might be right, that people will stay up and stand up and listen and say, hm, we don't want that to happen again. So yeah.
1: But now then look I agree totally. I think the seed is up for grabs. I'd be very surprised if Labor won it, but I think there's a real chance of an independent. And if Labor gives their preferences to the independent, and and if the Greens give their preferences to the independent, that's going to be a significant point in you know in getting it up. But there's a you know there's a couple of factors in it all. I mean, the Liberal Party in Victoria is an mm. absolute rabble, as you've seen in two state elections. I mean. The fact with all the anger against Dan Andrews over the lockdowns Dan won three seats extra in the election, and they were just a rabble as they were, in a, you know, before. And, and, and so I doubt that they have the ability to run a, a decent campaign. By the same token, some of the vote against Tud's last time was an anti-Morrison vote, and anti-Morrison mm. Mor- not around to hit again. So there's a few... Well, Morrison still is around, but not not a force in this election, and so uh, we've got a thing I think we watch this with great interest, and I just hope that an independent, a quality independent candidate runs, because I think this is again give the independence in Parliament a big fill up if another one arrived, and and I think that's a good that would be a good thing. Well, um, some
0: other sort of loose ends with this. Um, Josh Frydenberg ruled himself out of the running. As soon as Tudge called time on his career, the word was whisper, whisper, Josh Frydenberg's coming back, whisper, whisper. And he immediately put a stop to that and said, no, I'm not. So full credit to him for coming out straight away and saying he's not going to do it, rather than sort of bask in the glory of a news cycle all about him for two weeks. The other question is, I suppose, do the Liberals run a um, centre-right, female candidate to try to distance themselves from that Alan Tudge, Scott Morrison style of politics and then question following that, if yes, does it really matter if they do when Peter Dutton's running around the seat campaigning, who is a relic of the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison years and has, you know, no great record of being a progressive who listens to women. So it's um how... Yeah, well, we'll, I, think that's, I think that's the question of like how we'll say... A, a teal, independent-style candidacy go um, against the Peter Dutton-era Liberals versus the Morrison-era Liberals?
1: Well, I, I think that if the Liberals don't run with a good female candidate, they're going to lose. they got a reputation across the country of being anti-women. They don't pay women enough. They if, if they run a male candidate in Ashton, they're done now now, whether their female candidate will save them is uh, another matter As you said there's all sorts of faction factors around the little and we'll watch this space I do the word I get is that the by-election won't be on until after Easter so there's a, uh, a, a little bit because they want to avoid it clashing with the New South Wales elections at the end of March and so uh, there's a bit of water to go under the bridge in, uh, in you know in that uh, you know, in that time. We better get on to good and bad guys of the, you know, of the uh, of the week. Uh, we, we're running out of time, and you, you'll want to kick me out of your company in this, but I'm going to declare the Koch brothers in America to be the good guys of the week. Now you know the Kochs, but K-O-C-H, there has been endless books written about them. They have financed with millions upon millions of dollars for, for their whole lifetime arch-right-wing candidates in American elections at whatever level. And they came out this week and said they are withdrawing their financial support from Donald Trump's election campaign, but they will massively finance every conservative that wants to run. They'll massively, but they're not going to give their money to Donald Trump. Now, that's a bit of a grievous blow to Donald, because the Koch brothers gave him a lot of money. So I just thought when the Koch brothers tell you that Donald Trump is history, I can tell you, mate, he is history, and that was a,
0: that was a good thing. Mm, I suppose I, I have to give pause to the idea that Ron DeSantis, the potential lead candidate after Trump, is um, much better because he's shown potential as well to be sickeningly cruel. But it is nice just for a moment to sit back and say, like, wow, maybe, maybe we are done with the Donald, um, so I can totally see why. It feels yeah. like a bit of a relief. Well, are
1: your good guy of the week?
0: Uh, my good guy of the week, I think we, we discussed before the show, we have to mention these people at some point. Um, my good people of the week are those people in Turkey and Syria at the moment helping with the earthquake recovery. Um, terrible, terrible tragedy there, the 7.8 magnitude earthquake and all the aftershocks after. And the first responders and emergency services putting their lives on the line. To uh to save the lives of others, our hearts go out to them. I think I can speak for both of us when I say our hearts go out to all the families um in Turkey and Syria and around the world who have friends and family over there at the moment. Um, we are all, you know, rooting for you guys and that um as many lives as possible can be saved, I think.
1: Too and uh, and, and thoroughly endorse that. Again, politics can be done with everything, but as soon as it happened. There were people around the world who don't like Erdogan, the president. Let's be quite clear. I don't like him but there were people who said, "Why wasn't he prepared for this? Why didn't he have a, an earthquake?" Said, "Why didn't he have troops on the ground ten seconds later?" And I thought that was over the top. How the hell can any leader determine where an earthquake's going to happen and have everybody in position? And he does admit later that he's a bit slow, uh, you know, in uh, you know, in moving in uh, you know, in that direction, but also. It does show that every nation in the world does have to have a big investment in instant crisis response. I'm not sure that Australia's investment in instant crisis response here, in, in you know, floods, fires, droughts, I don't believe we're terribly organized either. And I think the message of this is we all better get organized. Also, the message is to builders and architects around the world start building buildings, even houses that have got a certain amount of earthquake uh, you know, response in them because one of the problems with all those buildings falling over in Turkey is they were mainly jerry built buildings who couldn't even handle a shutter, let alone an earthquake. And so I think the architects and, mm-hmm. and the governments that approve buildings better start making them earthquake-proof and flood-proof and you know, fire-proof and what have you. And that's, what I think, what Turkey shows, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I, I can't disagree with anything you've said there, and I think you put it pretty well. Who's your, your bad guy this week?
1: Well, my bad guy this week Clive Palmer. And poor old Clive, he gets to be the bad guy, you know, Jordan. but, but he, he, he's come out again. He's going to take the government to court because Tanya Plibersek refused to authorise his, his mind. Now, there are two things in the world that are absolutely dead certain to happen. One is that the sun will come up every morning. That is dead. The second thing is that every day Clive Palmer will sue something. I know (laughs) 20 20 cases that our Clive got on now. And and he's the greatest social service benefactor of the law profession the world has ever seen in in the whole thing. And so I I just think that that poor old Clive uh, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, he's just out of his depth in this world. Let's just put it that way and he not need money to try and prove he's a strong man you know but I I, I, I think he's, uh, he's, my,
0: he's my bad guy anyway and yeah, um, the the rumor I heard around the traps is that Clive likes to um retain lawyers through all his lawsuits up until the point of the closing submissions where he cuts their retainer after they've done their work takes their closing submissions and reads them out himself in court so he can have his day as the big dog. And that sounds <laughs> very in character. That sounds incredibly <laughs> in character.
1: Know, um he's around now. Who's your bad guys.
0: Uh, my bad guys of the week are the Indian cricket team. Um they've done nothing wrong. In fact, they haven't, you know, they haven't cheated or done anything. I cast no dispersions at all. They're just so damn good. <laughs> um Australia's <laughs> over there right now playing a test series. They bowled us out for 177. I think they're on um three hundred and seventeen or something overnight, uh, definitely 300 and something. So quite a big lead, seven wickets down, Ravi Judeja and Akshar Patel both having passed 50 overnight. Uh, debutant for Australia, Todd Murphy uh, from New South Wales, took a five for on debut. Uh, he's the first ever Australian Test Cricketer born after me. Uh, so maybe we should start calling the show uh, <laughs> Old Everald and Old James for quality. Yeah, true. Because true. Now there are uh, Test Cricketers born after me. But, um, yeah, the, the Indian cricket team is well on top. And, um, obviously, they've done it through skill and their superior bowling and batting abilities. But it's, oh, it's so frustrating. So they get my bad guy, <laughs> Colin. The, yeah, well,
1: the, the Indian cricket team is very interesting. When you live in a nation with 1.4 billion people, this is a nation that loves cricket, the one legacy, the one decent thing that Britain did to India Britain raped India for hundreds of years. The one decent thing they did was install cricket in India to become the the national game, far better better than football, baseball, everything. And if you're a young kid in India with 1.4 billion people, when you're in a little village that's pretty hopeless and you're going to spend your life in poverty, if you can play for the Indian Test cricket team, get that far, you are made. And so you'll find around India, millions of kids bowling against the wall everywhere. They all want to get into that team. That's their path to fortune. And they've got an endless reserve of players coming through like that. We don't have that fervour in Australia, and I think that's part of the difference.
0: Mm, And, I mean, look, we we have so many sports here. Cricket's not necessarily the most lucrative sport. I love it, but um, I think... Yeah, it, it's still our national sport. It's still a very popular game. The game can always grow more. We're both cricket fans. So I think we'd love to see a competitive test series and we wish our boys over there all the best, I believe.
1: Well, we do. And, and, and may the game of cricket continue to enlighten the world. Well, James, I think we've had a a, a, a good... We're back again and and uh, and we'll we'll be, I think, by next weekend, another session part of Parliament next week, I think a few things are going to happen we've got to discuss the new south wales election at the moment and the gambling issue yes i want to have a beat so next week we might pick on gambling in new south wales and a bit of a hit about gambling everywhere for that matter but, but, but gambling which seems to me to be a crucial topic but good to talk to you and we'll be back again next week james bye for now
0: yep thanks ev a uh, great chat today i think and thanks everyone back at home for listening and uh, also Hope you all enjoyed your uh, three-week break without us. Um, But we're back, yeah, polluting the airwaves uh, on a regular basis. So see you all next week. Ciao for now. Bye for
1: now.